Welcome to your Digital Mentor Podcast. I'm Isabella Mota from the Welcome Connecting Science. And today we're going to talk about leadership. I'm here with Dr. Marcel Philbin, the Chief Executive of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine, and Dr. Stephen Baker, Director of Research for Global Health in the Department of Medicine of the University of Cambridge. Both welcome. And can you please introduce yourselves a little bit to our audience, starting with Marcia? Hello, my name is Marcia Philbin, and I am the Chief Executive of the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine, which is the membership body for doctors who are involved in all aspects of medicine development. So as you can imagine, with the uh, past about 20 months now, with COVID-19, our members have been very busy. I'm also a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry. Thank you, Martha. You, Steve? I'm Stephen Baker. I'm a microbiologist and uh, I'm based at the University of Cambridge. I've been here for the last two and a bit years. And our group focuses on researching how gram-negative bacteria become pathogenic, how they spread, how they develop resistance to antimicrobials. And then we try and think about developing new solutions to try and treat and prevent them. Yes. And uh, can I ask you how you made it to your current roles? So your path to leadership, starting with Stephen this time. I mean, how I've made it is quite, yeah. I mean, how I'm here is one thing. I don't think I've made it, but how I'm here is... Uh, Imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got a convoluted story. I think my convoluted story is a little bit complicated. I didn't do especially well at school. I went to university through clearing. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I found something I was interested in, which happened to be cell biology. And then I happened to get a job at a, at a small research center back in the late 1990s called the, the Sanger Center, which um, was emerging at the time, particularly in, in bacterial genomics. And that got me interested in bacterial genomics. Uh, I decided I needed to do a PhD. So I moved to London, did a PhD, ended up going back to the Sanger then in a completely different rise then as a kind of postdoc. And then, to be honest, I got kind of slightly disillusioned with kind of the basic science and its kind of lack of direction for doing anything useful and applied. So I moved to Vietnam in 2007, where I went from uh, a postdoc to becoming a professor at Oxford. And then I left Vietnam in 2019 to take this position at Cambridge. And I've been here for the last, as I said, two and a bit years. So it's a little bit convoluted. And I think that it, I've changed in various ways, but decided to do things that were maybe slightly less off the trajectory of a kind of normal kind of laboratory scientist. Oh, great. Thank you. And it's also interesting, you said uh, you're not the best student at school and it shows that it, sometimes grace doesn't mean anything. Uh, you just need to find something you really like and then you can be great at it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of finding something I was interested in. I think that probably uh, the mechanism of teaching at school didn't suit me. And I think it probably wasn't until I went to university where I realized what learning is and also learning how to learn myself as well, that actually getting embedded in something and, and going out there and finding the information of yourself was a completely different way of doing things. Einstein, famously, apparently he was really bad at school. <laughs> so, <laughs> Great. What about you, Marcia? Yes. So it's, it's interesting because um, listening to Stephen, I wanted to, to do medicine when I was at school, but it became very clear that I was very good at chemistry. But even though I was really good at chemistry, um, I applied for medicine, but I didn't get the grades to get into uh, medical school. So I did chemistry and um, that was the right decision for me. When I was thinking about this question, 
My first leadership position was at university when I was doing my PhD. I became a, a member of the Postgraduate Association and um, I was appointed to be the events chairperson. So I, I was responsible for organising events. We had a, a centre and a disco and I became one of the DJs. <laughs> And so we used to right hold events, and um, and I used to um, do the DJing for them. I even DJed for my friend's wedding. <laughs> so that was uh, that, that was my. When I was thinking about my first foray into leadership, that was the thing that came to mind. And then after my PhD, I went to work for the Ministry of Defence, and I, I worked in different agencies of the Ministry of Defence. And another example of leadership there is that the area I was working in was um, explosives. So we made specialised molecules that could go into explosives. And because I was on the polymer side, I was making binders that helped to um, case the uh, um, small molecules. But the funding for that area was decreasing. And I was looking at a new area for us to move into where we could make functional materials. And I went out, wrote a, uh, a bid, got the funding, and that led to me supervising five PhD students and two postdoctorals. And uh, that, again, was another example of me spotting an opportunity to change and lead that change. And, and what was interesting, this was about six years after I've been working there, I was thinking, you know, I, I need to move on. I, I knew that I had more to give and more to do. But my line manager at the time, his attitude was, oh, he's taught me 20 years to get to where I am. So, <laughs> you know, you can wait, you'll bide your time. And, you know, I felt these guys were just holding me back. So I started looking around. And then there was a major restructure and a new head of the uh, department came in. It was a guy called Dave Edwards. And he spotted me and he promoted me to become the business group manager. So I was the business group manager for 50 scientists and engineers. And then from that, I went into various roles. And then after 20 years, uh, I left MOD and uh, I joined the Royal College of Paediatrics and Child Health as the Assistant Director for Science and Research. And that was in 2016. And then uh, three years after that, I saw the role, my current role, they were looking for a new Chief Executive Officer. And it was Chief Executive Officer, it was in pharmaceutical medicine, which is aligned to chemistry, and it was also in postgraduate medical education. So for me, those three things, I thought, I might as well apply, and I applied, and here I am. <laughs> Congratulations. And you mentioned so something, since your undergrad years, you already showed some leadership skills, but was this something you thought of as a child already, or it sort of gradually happened? You know what's interesting? I, I, I remember lying in bed when I was about 14 and I always remember this and I wanted to see the world, right? I, I, I didn't want something where it was just the same day in, day out, but I wanted to travel and see the world. And with working with MOD, um, I've achieved that and I've done some travel also with my current role and when I was at the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. So... I think there was an element of that and going into something because I can't do something if I'm not interested in it. And so with MOD, the, the, the scope of research that I was able to get involved in and, you know, the opportunities that it afforded definitely was something that I wanted. 
Mm. What about you, Stephen? Was it something that you wanted since as a child? I mean, what a great question. Um, no, I don't think so. I I, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, to be honest. And whether I had kind of uh, visions of grandeur at taking more senior positions, I think we all want to be successful in what we do. But I, I don't think I had any real kind of direction of thinking, I want this job and I want to have this role that's more senior than other people. I think that what happened to me was more that I kind of liked aspects of what I was doing and the natural progression of science is that if you want to keep doing what you're doing, at some point you've either got to decide that you're going to be permanently doing it for other people or you're going to do it for yourself. And at that point usually comes when you get your first grant or something like that. And at that point there is really no return. And I think then that's when I kind of realised that probably I was in this for a bit longer term. So it was really that point where I thought, actually, maybe this is something I can continue to do. And did you think you had a, a role model, someone that you looked up to, either privately or publicly, that sort of inspired you? Yeah, I think we all do, don't we? I think that, and actually, this has probably happened throughout life. I think that at various points in my life, you asked about my school days, there are certain teachers or individuals that, that would have been there, uh, not necessarily in the area that I work in now, that would have played a role in um, just the way you interact with people or the way things are established. There was also then, obviously, my PhD supervisor, um, so Gordon Dugan, who actually I work with now again at the university. So we're now working again together after I started my PhD 20 years ago, and now we're working together again. And also then when I, the person that persuaded me to move to um, Vietnam was Jeremy Farah, who's now the director of the Wellcome Trust. So both those individuals had a fairly kind of big effect on me during my kind of PhD and then postdoc years. And then now, yeah, less so now. I think we probably always need some guidance from more senior people. It just, as you become more senior yourself, there's less of those people to interact with, I guess. So it becomes slightly more difficult now. You are now the Romandas, right? So I guess quite a few people looking up to you. Well, we're, tr we're trying. I think we try. I think that um, the way that works often is by passing on lessons that you've learned before from other people. So I think that the way the lab is very much structured and the way I go around things now is very similar to the way I would have been taught and what I would have learned from things that did and didn't work over the years. And there's a few things that obviously added that link in with your own personality and your own views But I think generally things work the same way as they would have done in the other labs that I've worked in in the past. What about you, Martin? Mine's slightly different because my parents are part of the Windrush generation. And, you know, they came from Jamaica and education was the key for them. That was the route for improving the opportunities in life for us. And I remember when I was about to choose my O-levels, My dad said, you know, what do you want to do? And I reeled off a few things. And he looked at me and he said, why don't you aim higher? And, he, and, and I went, right, absolutely, I should aim higher. And so I said, okay, I'll be a brain surgeon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But I just kept aiming higher because the thing is, if you aim higher, even if you don't reach it, you still reach higher than what you thought before. The other person that really inspired me was Lieutenant Uhura, from the original Star Trek series. So growing up in the 70s, there wasn't a lot of positive images of black people, particularly in the media, um, on TV, in newspapers. I mean, if, if black people were mentioned positively, it's because they won a, a perhaps Olympic medal or something, but most of the time, right, it, it wasn't positive. And similarly on TV, 
And Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek, she, she was a lieutenant. She wasn't a maid. She wasn't a servant, right? She, she wasn't a cleaner. Um, she wasn't any of that. She was an educated woman and she was a communication officer in a position of responsibility. And that was just really mind-blowing to see that and really inspiring. So I always remember Lieutenant Uhura. The other role model I had as well was Dr. Brainbridge, who was a chemistry teacher at school. And he had one hand. <laughs> I lost his other hand um, in, I think it was in the World War Two. And he said to me, you know, you can do this, right? So just do it. Because I was doubting myself that I could do chemistry. And he said, of course you can, just do it. <laughs> so I did it. And then the other role model I have is Dr. Amas, who was my PhD supervisor. He was a lecturer and he, and he became my PhD supervisor. And he just believed in me. He encouraged me, motivated me. So those are the four key people that I think about when I think about my journey to where I am now. Brilliant. Really glad you had that. Yeah, you spoke about the power of representation on the podcast before and yeah, so important. So what do you both think that makes a good leader? Some of the top qualities? The first thing that came to mind for this one was empathy. And empathy for me is important because of where I'm from. I understand what others may have gone through. I'm used to being underestimated. <laughs> I'm, I'm used to people assuming that I am something and when I'm not. I remember being at university and going to a, a lecture and I had my books and a rucksack and I was rushing to get there. And um, this lady stopped me and she said, you're late, you're late. And, and, I, and I looked around and I realised she was speaking to me because she thought I was a cleaner. Right. She didn't, she didn't see my books or anything that all she saw was a black person. And so I must have been the cleaner. And so I'm used to that kind of thing. So empathy, really understanding what others are going through. And the other one for me is about being authentic as well and willing to share your personal stories. Because if people can see where you've come from and what you've gone through, then they realize actually, you're just like me. I, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Things just didn't happen. Opportunities came along and I embraced them. I, I took them. But I had to do certain things in order to be in that position to do that. I always define luck as opportunity meets preparedness. And I prepared myself by getting education, by um, getting training by listening and talking with others. And then when opportunities came along, I was ready to embrace them. So for me, it's about being emphatic and also being authentic. Great. Thank you, Marcia. What about you, Steve? Wow. I mean, it's difficult to compete with those really, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I agree with those. I think there's so many different aspects and it depends on the scenario. I think honesty, uh, as much as possible, being open I think that we're going through a very strange phase in human politics at the moment where kind of transparency is is talked about but isn't particularly well valued. I think that actually being as transparent as possible, even in different circumstances, which obviously links up with being honest. And authentic, Stephen, as well. Yeah, yeah, agreed. 
and making sure that actually you're making the right decision that it's gonna it's gonna stand the test of time rather than making a snap decision for what's going to happen in the next five minutes. And I think link, linking in with that also, what I've also tried to do, and on the back of um, you know the people that I work with, is making confident decisions as well. Something that I learned actually quite early on is that people respect you more if you make a decision. Not making a decision doesn't help anybody. So even if you make a wrong decision, people respect you more than making no decision. So I would say transparency, honesty, but also then the ability to make a decision, whether it's right or wrong and in different circumstances, probably for me. Oh, great answers. Thank you both. And what do you feel that you had to give up to be in this position? Now? For instance, now you don't have as much time to, to do the science itself. Why do you feel you had to let go? It's really hard to answer that question because... I don't know what I would have had otherwise, but I think of, um, you know, everyone goes through trials and tribulations to get to wherever they're doing. I don't think anybody gets anywhere particularly easily, maybe some people more easily than others. But yeah, quite a lot. I mean, a lot of time, a lot of energy, uh, a lot of emotional energy, um, things that you would rather done time with family, time with friends. Sometimes, you know, at work as well, when people you've worked with have been your friends and you've had to make difficult decisions or things don't work in your favor. So often personal relationships. So ultimately you end up, you end up giving up quite a lot. Some things you can hold on to clearly because you have to, you have to have the support of your family and others around you to make sure that, but actually you give up quite a lot with respect to your time, your energy, and also those personal interactions. Running a research group or any degree of leadership means that that you can be friends with the people you work with, but that relationship is always different. And you learn that as you go along, people will treat you differently if you're in a position, responsibility and leadership, whether you like that or not. And so you give up those personal interactions. Uh, and that sometimes can be quite difficult, but it, but you kind of get used to it, to be honest. Okay. What about you, Marcia? The first thing I had to give up was my family. Because when, when, when I got my first job, I had to move from Birmingham <laughs> down to um, Seven Oaks in Kent. So I had to move away from my family. So I didn't really give up my family, but I had to give up living with them. But, you know, it was for the best. It was for my future. And it's what I needed to do. And I don't regret it because I'm still here. And, and I remember when I was leaving, my mum started crying. <laughs> right, because, you know, I've got four brothers. I was the only girl and, you know, I was off. And that was it. But, you know, it needed to happen. I think the other thing, I wouldn't say... Gave up. It's what I delayed because um, I still meet up with some friends from primary school. Many of them are grandmothers, <laughs> right? Because, you know, they, they, they got married and had their kids early, right? And, you know, I didn't. Um, I, I, did, I did it later, right? Because I was investing in my career. So I, I delayed that side of things. Um, I got married late and I had my twin boys later in life. And so in terms of my journey is very different from my peers who I went to school with. And you both were just on holidays. And I asked Stephen before if he actually managed to take any time off. And I think the answer was mainly no. Uh, oh, I did. <laughs> Can you, is it possible to maintain a, a good work-life balance? Or that's <laughs> absolutely not possible. No, you can, you can. I think in the early days when you're investing in your career, then it depends what's important to you then, right? I mean, for me, getting to a certain point in my career, 
was important. So that's where I put my energy. So I didn't feel that I was missing out on anything, but I still went on holidays. I still went out and did things, but the balance of my lifestyle was more focused on career. Now that I've got my family and, um, you know, it's, it's more balanced. It's more 50, 50. I mean, it's interesting when I had my twins in, um, I had twin boys in 2004 and, um, I came, went back to work when, um, they were seven months and, uh, I went back to work just three days a week. I was leading a project and, you know, I was leading that project. I could do it in three days a week, but it was great because, you know, at that time I could keep my technical skills up to date. But when I was at home for the rest of the time, right, I could be there for the boys and I worked like that until they were six years old. So for me, I had the best of both worlds. Uh, I think it's hard. I think it's hard. So no, no is the answer to that question in contrast, <laughs> <laughs> in contrast to Marcia. And I think it's very much dependent on not only the job, but also yourself. I'm a bit of a mentalist, to be honest. I, I, I don't relax particularly well anyway. I, I kind of get edgy. And running a research group is a really good way to generate paranoia because there's a million things going on. And if you're not there, then it's not like you don't trust anybody, but you have to keep tabs on everything, you know. So here we run a, a containment level two and a containment level three laboratory. And we have samples coming in from different places in the world, from the hospital. But there is quite a lot to think about with visiting students, PhD students, postdocs, grants that have to be submitted, papers that have to be submitted, grant reports, you know. There's a lot to do. And switching off your email, which I kind of manage to do from time to time, just kind of makes things worse because then you've got to come back and deal with all the stuff that you haven't done anyway. So what I do is, as I pointed out to you before, off air, is that I have the worst of both worlds, whereas I don't really relax on holiday and I kind of do work half-heartedly and then get further behind than I would have done anyway. So I think that's probably partially me and I need to learn, but it, it is it is tough. <laughs> Actually, I, I do concur with that, uh, Stephen, because I mean, I was I went away for two weeks to Cornwall, and in those two weeks, I did check my emails about three or four times, and there were a couple that I had to action and forward on. But what I did, I was strategic about it. I said, well, "I'm going to do it then. It will be for ten minutes, and that was it." And then I forgot about it. <laughs> Great. Well, everybody listening to this, do that. Don't do what I do because it's yeah. terrible, right? Do, do, dedicate some time, answer your emails, and then switch off. Don't do what I do. And remember, with great power comes great responsibility. So Yeah, yeah. Then what is your favourite part of it? What do you enjoy the most? It's a really good question. I ask myself that on a regular, a regular basis. It's tough, but I, I think that, um, you know, that there's that element of doing science that when you find something or you do something that's of use, then that is still exciting. As I've kind of got older, the it's still great to get grants. We all need grants. And also the papers. You know, I still publish a lot, but I get less excited about the papers. What I get excited about now is seeing something new or also that aspect of bringing somebody into science and then them having that kind of degree of excitement to that younger age also, I think. So having people that that go through their career and helping on that stepping stone of building their career, whether it's a research assistant or a PhD student or a postdoc, having somebody like that that has that spark in the laboratory or wants to do something different uh, and learn the process. And I think that I kind of forget how difficult that process is of going through and building a career in science. So seeing people that want to do it and having some role in that 
is probably still the best part of the job because that is quite that is very rewarding. For me, the best thing about being the chief executive of FPM is that I can make things happen, and you know I'm growing the organisation. When I started, there was eleven members of staff. We're now up to fourteen. We've got plans for developing the membership. I mean, as I said in my opening, COVID nineteen has been dominating much of what we've done, and it's put FPM on the map in terms of the media. We've been approached from so many media and comments, and also we're looking at you know developing our educational and training programs. But another great thing for me is that when the government announced the Kickstart Fund to support young people, 16 to 25 year olds, to get into work, I applied to do that. I wanted to give a couple of young people a chance to learn about the work that we do and, you know, to get involved in, in FPM because chances are they would never be involved in something like that. And the two young men that we have, they've been absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And just to see the pleasure that they take in learning and being exposed to things that they would not be exposed to before is just such a joy. So that's been one of my highlights as well. And it comes back to that thing again about empathy, because I know what it is like. I've seen with my parents, you come from nothing and, you know, you just want to do better. And so, you know, just giving those two young men um, a chance, it's just been great. Nice. So uh, you're familiar with the concept of sponsorship. They say it's to have this person that advocates for you behind closed doors. And apparently it's very important for career progression is the single most important thing is that you have that person that is sort of rooting for you and making things happening within an institute. Do you feel you had a sponsor? I mentioned earlier that it was Dave Edwards who became the um, department head and he recognised my potential and he um, plucked me out and promoted me to be a business group manager. So that, in a way, is a a form of a a sponsor. Also, when I was at um, RCPCH, um, I was involved in a coaching programme and I had a coach and he's helped and supported me to think about where I could take my career in the direction. So I think it's good to have someone who you can bounce ideas off and who can support you in developing um, the opportunities that, you know, you want to pursue. Yeah, so Steve, I guess it's the same thing for you. The role models you mentioned, were they also sponsors in this case? I think in the university department, it's often essential. I think that it's very difficult to climb the slippery slope of academia without having people that are more senior than you within a department that can that can facilitate your success at every level, really, whether it's, you know, it's a postdoc that's prepared to provide input on papers or, a, you know, a, a junior PI that's helping people write kind of grant applications or a, a more senior individual that can allow people the opportunity to go and give talks or open doors for writing fellowships I think that to be honest it's it's almost essential it, it, it's probably a dirty little secret of academia to be honest I don't I don't think it's a particularly positive thing because it because it means that, that academia is open to cliques and clubs 
but I, I think that actually having progress in academia, particularly within departments, is, is it's essential you have sponsors to see that through. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult. To be honest, Stephen, I think it happens everywhere from my experience. I know that my first job and um, the reason I knew that this role had become available is because my supervisor had a contract with the MOD and the the project sponsor right, said, look, we've got this vacancy. If you know anybody, uh, anybody who would be interested, let us know. So he told me about it. So that's another form of sponsorship. But uh, I, I think this thing in terms of you know, finding out what's going on and you know, being aware of opportunities, that's where you know, a sponsor is really helpful and can help you. And that happens everywhere. And do you see yourselves as the sponsors now as well? Some nodding. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, I definitely see myself as a sponsor. And um, particularly with my staff members, when I see opportunities, and I think, actually, I think that'd be good for that person, that person. And, you know, I, I point them in that direction. One thing I'm very passionate about is ensuring that my guys have opportunities to develop. And even if they don't want to develop in terms of like going up the ladder, right, that they are able to do their job well. And so they have the right tools, they have the right exposure to experiences, new learning that can help them be more efficient or more, more effective in their role. That's brilliant. So are you not worried they're going to move on soon to do something else? And are you just happy for them to do so? I, I think that's great. If you've developed someone to the point that they have confidence to move on and others recognize what they have, that to me is success. Ah, oh, that's brilliant. You're sorry to lose them, but hey, you can always find somebody else. <laughs> Good. One of my frustrations probably with where I am in, in kind of my career is yeah, I, I do do that, but I'd like to do more of it at a kind of more senior level. I think one of the advantages of getting the more senior positions is the ability to kind of facilitate things and open doors for people. I do it and I've done a lot of it, particularly tried to do a lot of it when I was working overseas, um, because it's good to give people different opportunities to try and further their careers, particularly in maybe environments where there isn't so much science and it's difficult to get a break. But I think one of my frustrations is that I find it kind of difficult to do it at a, at a higher level, which is what I'd like to do. I think one of the roles of being a kind of senior academic is that to create opportunities for you. And, and I agree, I've never tried to hold on to anybody, to be honest. I think that the moment they learn something and they want to go and do something different, um, then, you know, good luck to them. I think that I, I, I see it as a great success if they've gone on and done things independently or, uh, and move on and want to work on different projects or move in different places then absolutely that's a huge success for them and indirectly for me as well so I think it's great. So I was reading that the former Twitter CEO said that managing by trying to be liked is the path to ruin. Do you agree with that? I totally agree with that. I mean one of the things I always do is make sure that there's an air gap between me and my staff members, because even though we're working towards the same objectives, the same aims, right, we're not peers, right? They're peers with one another, but, you know, we're not peers. My peers are the other CEOs of the overall medical colleges and faculties. And, and, you know, you have to make decisions, right? Sometimes you need to have those difficult conversations. And if you're poorly with them, that makes it even more difficult and, you know, sometimes you need to remember you can upset the balance if you're too powerly. So, yes, we have, a, you know, I have a great relationship with them, but we're not pals. 
we're colleagues. <laughs> and you see. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think that actually it's, um, even if you do try, it doesn't necessarily work out. There is a line though. I, I think that um, it helps being liked. I th- often, I think people are more willing to follow you if they find you supportive, which often comes with them liking you. Uh, making difficult decisions is part part of things, I agree. But actually, it's better if you can make decisions that are in everyone's interest and that does get you some support. So, so I do think... Yeah, it's not essential with the view that you need to be liked, but I think generally it does help things um, if you if you have a supportive environment around you and people do like you. Um, but I agree there is a line there that ultimately at some point that someone's going to have to leave or you're going to run out of funding or someone isn't going to quite cut it, that you're going to have to have those conversations and, and that becomes more difficult if you're, if you're you know, talking to them at the same level. So and as I said before, with the view, when I, and we touched on it before, I said, what do you lose? You, you, you lose a degree of friends and access to that kind of community that you're no longer a, a lab member. I don't sit down with my group and go for coffee or tea. I have my own coffee machine in my office here, which I use because it's just that's just not my role anymore. So, you know, I'm the boss and we have conversations and I'm friendly with people. Um, and do they like me? I, I think I was worried about that originally when I started being a boss. I wanted people to like me. But I got over that pretty quickly, to be honest, because it, it didn't really work. So I, I, I probably tried for the first year or two thinking, actually, I do want people to like me. And I'm quite upset when they didn't, when things went wrong. And then I just thought it was stupid. So then I gave up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Like, let's say a 20 year old you. I've got one moral, which I say to everybody. And, um, and I think that actually Marcia touched on it earlier, actually. I think she might have said it. But you just get on with it. I think just get on with it. I think that I am the world's worst person at overthinking things a million times. Uh, and actually what I what I kind of get annoyed with myself about is overanalyzing things and thinking about things too much when my when my gut instinct is right 99% of the time. And I have tended to make more better decisions than than bad decisions. Not all of them obviously we all make bad decisions, but I've made better more good decisions than bad decisions. And I think that if it was me now talk to myself you know, when I was a 20-year-old, I would say don't listen to anybody else that's giving you advice that's going to hold you back. Just get on with it. Just ignore them. Actually, the best thing to do, I've found often, is to listen to as many people's advice as you can, absorb it, understand it, ignore most of it and do what you want. And interestingly, I've said more or less the same as well. As I said, right, just stay on track and trust your instincts, right? Don't allow yourself to be distracted by others. Um, I mean, yes, you can listen to others for their advice, but ultimately you have to make that decision. You know yourself, right? You know yourself better than anybody knows you. And, you know, if you believe in doing something, then go for it and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Would you like to say any anything else, any take home messages for the audience? The only thing I would say is, you know, if I can do it, Anybody can. I mean, I've become a chief executive. And if you told me that when I was lying in my bed, age 14, thinking about I want to travel the world, and someone has said, you're going to be a chief executive one day, I would have, no way. But here I am. And I'm here because I embraced the opportunities that came my way. I wasn't afraid to try. Right? I went for it. I tried. And I just go for it. So that's what I would say. Just go for it embrace the opportunities that come your way and you just don't you, you never know where it could lead you thank you Marcy and you Stephen yeah I think I mean I agree with that as well I think that um I went to a kind of 
fairly average kind of comprehensive school and now you know I'm sat in an office as a you know as a member of faculty at Cambridge University so I think the deal is you just got to get on with it and then when the opportunities come you just got to take them and actually they're that they're if you think about them they're terrifying and actually they're still terrifying now um but it you know just you should got to do it if you say no to things too much then actually you never know so the, the better the better thing is to say yes and see where it leads you because if you say yes to things there's always opportunities i think so make good decisions and take opportunities when they come along would be my my take home message absolutely and don't be afraid of other people don't think that other people are better to, than you because they went to private school or they went to you know it's one of our higher institutions it's just a different experience right because like steve i went to um, you know a bog standard comp as well right? it's just a different experience but you've got something to give to don't put yourself down Yeah, and I think the first step is also is always to try, right? Because uh, we are doing an episode on imposter syndrome, and I was reading some stats that women don't tend to apply for positions until they have 100% of the prerequisites, whereas men tend to apply with 60%. I can't remember exactly, but uh, yeah, that's for sure. Try it. <laughs> Could you please share with our listeners where they can find you, you on social media? Yes, yeah, so um, if you can go to the website, you can find the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine. If you just put www.fpm.org.uk, right? So you'll find what we do. And there's some bios of the staff there as well. Well, not bios, but you'll see the people who work there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I Twitter as well, but I can't remember what my Twitter handle is. <laughs> I can, I'm going to put in our uh, episode description box, don't worry, I'll put a link for you as well. And you, Stephen? Yeah, I'm at Cambridge University, so you can find me on the Cambridge University website. I'm in the Department of Medicine, and we have uh, some information on there. And I'm also on Twitter. I'm not especially active on Twitter, but you can contact me on it, and it's um, Baker Lab Cam. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please follow us on Twitter at mental underscore podcast, where you'll let you know when new episodes are released. You can listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud by searching for your digital mental podcast. You can also reach us by email, so please send your comments and questions to inquiries at your digimental.net. As always, information on the episode and how to reach us will be in the description box, including how to connect with our guests and also links to more information and resources. And Finally, our goal is for the podcast to be shared as a resource. So please remember to tell people about us. Thanks again and see you in two weeks. This episode is supported by Advanced Courses and Scientific Conferences, a program which develops and delivers training and conferences that span basic research, cutting-edge biomedicine and application of genomics in healthcare. Through engaging and networking, the events educate, inspire and transform careers worldwide. This episode is also supported by the Wellcome Sanger Institute. It undertakes large-scale research that forms the foundations of knowledge in biology and medicine. It uses the power of genome sequencing to understand and harness the information in DNA. The Sanger's discoveries are used to improve health and to understand life on Earth.